This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Spectator's Daily Politics Podcast. I'm Cindy Yu and I'm joined by Fraser Nelson and James Forsyth. So Partygate continues the rumble on as this uh, rebellion of sorts continues to ramp up against Boris Johnson. James, at the moment he's having to fight off his standards commissioner. Can you tell us about this argument going on with Lord Guide? So yesterday the annual register of uh, ministers' interest was published and it has an introduction by Lord Guide. And it made clear how... It was written in, in, in kind of language that Sir Humphrey would be proud of. But you, but you didn't need a translator to be clear to understand how cross Lord Guide is. And essentially what he is upset about is that he had communicated, he says, repeatedly to Number 10, that he wanted Boris Johnson to talk about why Boris Johnson did not think he had broken the ministerial code, because otherwise Boris Johnson being fined by the police for breaking COVID regulations and not referring to the code would make the code look ridiculous. And Boris Johnson didn't, in Parliament or in his public utterances, explain how he thought being fined was not in contravention of a code. And Lord Guite basically kind of indicated that if that happens, you know, carries on happening, he would be put in a position where he would look ridiculous and would have to resign. And I think what is upsetting Tory MPs is two things. First of all, they just want Partygate to go away. Now, they knew that the Grey Report was not going to mean that it would go away because the Privileges Committee is going to investigate. But before the Privileges Committee investigation has even started, this story continues to rumble on. And I think that is trying their patience. And I think the second thing, which uh, a couple of people have said to me this morning, is, look, Boris Johnson told us all that you know he was sorting out number 10, made a big deal of the fact that you know there's a now new permanent secretary in number 10, new setup. And yet Boris Johnson in his letter says he didn't really understand that Lord Guy wanted him to refer to the ministerial code because of a failure of communication between the two offices. And as one um, member of the government payroll said to me this morning, you know, there are a few people more important to Boris Johnson right now than the ethics czar, essentially. And if the ethics czar is upset, how on earth was that information not getting to Boris Johnson, which is what Boris Johnson is saying. And I think there's, so I think there is a concern, A, that the story is rumbling on, and B, how did Downing Street miss that this was a problem and nip it in the bud? Because, you know, all Lord Guite seems to have wanted Boris Johnson to say is, I don't think I broke the ministerial code because... But my... James, is that the problem, that there is no way of spinning that? Well, I think there is precedent for... Uh, ministers in the past, not the Prime Minister, but ministers in the past having paid fixed penalty notices and saying that that doesn't breach their general, uh, you know, saying to hold the law because a fixed penalty notice is not the same as uh, a criminal conviction. Fraser, how problematic for Boris Johnson would it be if Lord Guite did resign? Um, he hasn't at the time of us recording, but people will say that it's 60-40 whether or not he goes or not. If Lord Guite resigns, I would say it then became probable that Boris Johnson would go. I think it's one of these... There are several things that would, would tilt the balance. I mean, right now, it's completely in the balance. I, I, I would say that he's more likely to stay right now than go. But if something is... He's put so much effort into keeping Guite on board. 
And there's a fundamental question here. Did he act? Uh, we know that he broke the law, but he says he did so unknowingly, unwittingly. In other words, that he didn't act uh, immorally. But if his standards advisor then quits, that will be a demonstration that the, the guy who we regard as the, is in the ultimate arbitrar of whether the prime minister behaves properly has thought that he didn't behave properly and he can't keep his job. So yes, that's one of several things that could be fatal for Boris Johnson. The list of such things, by the way, is growing. I mean, the, the by-elections coming up, if he loses both of them, that could be fatal for him. So I think it's just strange how much more, more danger he appears to be in right now. Mm. And James, meanwhile, the war in Ukraine continues to rumble on, and Joe Biden has written an op-ed in the New York Times about further actions that the Americans are willing to take. Tell us about that. So I think the op-ed is in part designed to cause up the, to, to clear up the confusion caused when, when Joe Biden suggested he wouldn't equip the Ukrainians with any weapons that could strike inside Russia. Mm. The, the, the op-ed makes clear that the US will be giving the Ukrainians these longer-range precision-guided artillery systems. You know, if those arrive quickly they could stem this Russian advance in the Donbass. It also says this. It says, look, Biden agrees with Zelensky, but this is ultimately going to end with a diplomatic solution. But but US support is designed to send Ukraine into the negotiating chamber in the strongest possible position. And it says that the US will not, in private or in public, pressure Ukraine to cede territory to the Russians to, to try and bring about an end to this conflict. I think the easiest way to read this piece is Biden essentially saying that the US will continue to support Ukraine until the Russians have been pushed back to where they were before the February 24th invasion. And then the negotiations will take place from there. And I think that what Biden is trying to do is trying to shore the Western alliance back up because there there have been increasing talk of division between Paris and Berlin and the Central and Eastern European nations and the Brits and the Americans who take a more hawkish stance. And the initial signs are that, you know, in public at least, it has done the job. In the German parliament's debate on Ukraine where Schultz has been attacked by the opposition for the fact that Germany is not doing more. Schultz has kind of come out and essentially said that you know he agrees with the Biden position as expressed in this MYT piece. So I think that we we see here an attempt by Biden to kind of reassert that leadership role that the US has played throughout this crisis, which has got slightly mired in confusion in the last few days. And I think also to try and say to Paris and Berlin, look, here is the position. Let's stick to this. If you want to keep a diplomatic channel open to Vladimir Putin, fine. But let's not indicate to him that we're all about to pressure the Ukrainians to give up territory to uh, enable a negotiated settlement. Fraser, at the beginning of the war, there was this discussion about whether or not NATO would supply Ukraine with jets, also with a no-fly zone with the argument being that defensive measures are fine, but uh, offensive ones are not. Aren't these missiles pretty offensive? I mean, has that distinction just over now? Are we not afraid of uh, triggering Vladimir Putin in the same way? It's becoming more moot. I mean, you do need more heavy arms now if you stand any chance of getting the Russians out of the territory which they occupy. So, I mean, simply we're in a different phase of the campaign. Uh, so, so, yes, the dial is moving a little bit. Um, but I get the horrible sense of things now looking a lot better for Putin than we did about six or eight weeks ago. Mm. I take the opposite view to most people of the EU sanctions yesterday. I saw in those oil sanctions basically a win for Putin. I saw a split in the EU and the sense that 
Italy and um, France are willing to sail Zelensky down the river is increasing. So I, I, I do think things are going to change, and probably quite quickly. I think we're going to see more of this alliance of the willing. Forget the EU, forget even NATO. I think we're going to see Britain, the Baltic states, Poland, and some other countries, perhaps with America, simply taking a different view of this conflict than the EU countries that are were so equivocal. In the, um, in the sanctions. A sanction regime, by the way, which if you look at the price of oil now, $125 a barrel, and if you look at how much more Putin is selling to India, mm-hmm. he's selling about 800,000 barrels a day more to Asia, Moscow is going, not going to go bust anytime soon. This isn't like the 1980s, where the Saudis agreed to basically pump out so much oil that the price of oil went down and the Soviet Union went bust. I mean, that was um, the Saudis are not playing ball this time. The sanctions only really work if you get somebody like Saudi Arabia pumping out oil and the oil price goes down. When it shoots up, Putin is net beneficiary. And the cohesion which started this conflict has not lasted into its seventh, fourth month. Mm. I think one thing I would say which is important is this talk of insurance sanctions. So basically you couldn't insure shipments of Russian oil leaving Russia. I think that would have a a hit. Mm -hmm. But I think as Fraser says, the the big question is whether the Saudis and the UAE, the countries with spare capacity, are prepared to pump more. Now, I think the Saudis are trying to get concessions from Washington on lots of things like the nature of the Iran nuclear deal, MBS's personal situation in the US after the murder of the Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi. And I think the Biden administration is on a major wooing of Saudi Arabia. But you know we have yet to see that bear fruit in terms of a massive Saudi pumping campaign deliberately designed to push the price down. And I think you know there's little chance of that before October. And I think the Saudis are driving a hard bargain. Mm. I, I think we ought to be so blunt about this, the sanctions are failing. They're not working. They're not doing. The fact that the sanctions have been agreed upon isn't enough. You've got to work out: does this weaken or strengthen Putin? And right now, he seems to be he seems to be a net beneficiary of what the system is right now. And I'm a little bit alarmed that more people aren't pointing this out. If you read the the German press, um, they're being quite frank about it. Here, I think we're being a little bit naive. I think there's a bit of jingoism in our reporting, where we simply want our sanctions to be working. And we should be looking a lot more about the Russian balance of payments, about the strength of the ruble, and the strength of Putin's regime in general. Well, away from Russia and Ukraine, in this country there is tighter fiscal policies uh, coming down the line, but it's not from England. Fraser, Mr Steerpike writes on the Spectator's Coffeehouse blog yesterday, uh, talking about Kate Forbes as a tartan Thatcher. Was Mr Steerpike being flippant, or is there a new Thatcher rising in Scotland? I'm not sure if I'd call her a new Thatcher, but Kate Forbes is a very impressive politician. She was thrust into the job of SNP finance minister shortly before the budget, a bit like Rishi Sunak. But unlike Rishi Sunak, she's been very fiscally conservative in what she's done. Her budget um, last week, basically, the, the, the Scottish Fiscal Commission has a very bleak outlook for Scotland, by the way, as for England. But it was saying, look, you're not going to get growth of more than 1% for the next sort of four or five years. That's dreadful. And the benefits costs are going to surge from something like um, 4.2 million to 6.8 million. That's a lot. And so Kate Forbes said, okay, in that case, there's going to have to be cuts. Government itself, we're going to have to cut the cost of government. So she's cutting a billion pounds from schools, police and fire services. Um, in order to balance the books. And it's quite funny, actually, to see her taking the decisions that I would, the tough decisions that I think are necessary in London. Mm. And it's funny, a unionist like me, having to say that a nationalist like Kate Forbes 
is being more grown up about it than those making decisions here in London, who I still think are living a little bit in cloud cuckoo land. <laughs> we, we simply cannot afford a government 55% bigger than it was under Blair's years with negligible growth. We simply cannot tax the country anymore to meet these bills. Spending is going to have to be addressed. That process has started in Scotland. It will eventually have to come to England. The question is how and when. James, is uh, the SNP more conservative than the Conservatives right now? I think the interesting question is the vulnerable flank that this opens up. So, A, the fact that the tax revenues in Scotland suggest that the higher tax rates the SNP have imposed have not delivered extra revenue. Um, the second thing I would say is the interesting question is Scottish Labour have uh, you know, been flirting with a revival in the council elections recently in Scotland. And whether this policy shift by the SNP opens up some more space for, for Scottish Labour to try and move into and to pressure them. I think there is a fundamental question for this country, which is, you know, the health service takes up more and more resource. Mm. And I think one of the problems you've got right now is it is very hard to say what any government, are, 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 you know, in the UK, whether UK-wide or Scottish or Welsh, have to improve productivity in the health service. That, I think, is the big question. How do you make the health service more productive? Because, you know, it's now, by the end of this parliament, it's going to be around 40% of day-to-day government spending. You know, that, that is up hugely since the Blair years. And if it's going to be that much of government spending, it's got to be more productive than it is now. I think Kate Forbes is an incredibly interesting figure. Um, She has got a lot of courage, of course, to talk about cuts in an era like this. She's defended herself, pointing out, of course, that she's got no option but to cut because she has to balance the budget. The Scottish um, government is unable to run deficits like the UK government, so she's had fiscal responsibility thrust upon her. But she's also, you know, she's young, she's 32, she's a Highlander, and she's also, what strikes me as... A Christian is how she talks about her own faith. Um, Christians in public life tend not to want to admit it. Not only does she admit it, but uh, she gave an interview recently where she told Nick Robinson, in fact, I'll just play the clip here. I mean, to be straight, I believe in the person of Jesus Christ. I believe that he died for me, he saved me, and that my um, calling is to serve and to love him and to serve and love my neighbours with all my heart and soul and mind and strength. So, you know, that for me is is essential to my being and politics will pass. You know, I'm, I am a person before I was a politician and that person is, you know, will continue to believe that I am made in the image of God. Now, those are the words are not spoken by anybody in public life right now. I think Kate Forbes is a very unusual politician, perhaps somebody who won't be long with us. I mean, it's said that she's too conservative to flourish in the SNP. I hope that's not true, but I'm, you know, my, my friends in Edinburgh, who are more plugged in than me, say that she's on the wrong side of the SNP culture wars. But I think we ought to just acknowledge that for if a devolution has given us quite a lot of interesting political characters, and Kate Forbes is one of them. And to find out more about Kate Forbes, funnily enough, I have a podcast recommend on that where she talks to Katie Balls on Katie's Women With Balls podcast, so you just go find that wherever you get your podcasts from. Fraser, James, thanks very much, and thank you for listening. And don't forget, we've got that Jubilee offer as well, where we're offering you the chance of subscribing to the magazine for 10 weeks in print and online for just £1. And not only that, we're also throwing a commemorative tea towel. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash jubilee. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Coffee House Shots. If you enjoyed it, please leave us a rating and review. And to keep up to date with the world of Westminster, sign up for Unrivaled Insight and Analysis with Isabel Hardman's Evening Blend newsletter, delivered to your inbox every weekday evening. Sign up at www.spectator.co.uk forward slash evening hyphen blend.